I've been pondering, I say this I think every time I get up here, I've been pondering again the title, if I'm going to give this a title, and I've got a couple. One of them is, oh, we could say, Dance on the Side of the Sea, or we could also call it The Discipline of Joy, just to give the podcast boys something to, something to decide about when they get to the end of it. This comes from, um, those of you who are here, when I led the meeting two or three weeks back, um, and then in, when, I was, when I was doing that, um, I found, uh, I guess you would say it was, it was God. <laughs> I started to talk, for those of you who are here, about the fact that, that worship, from the songs we were singing and everything else, that we were, we were commanded, that worship was a command. And that that aspect of worship was, had absolutely not one thing to do with how we felt at that given moment. And that we were commanded to do this thing in all aspects of life. And I haven't really been able to quite move on from that, so I'm going back there today. But first of all, I'm just going to ask, ask you a general question. Do you want to experience God? That sounded a bit kind of... Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to experience God? Yeah. Look, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but for many years of my Christian experience, and it's nobody's fault, it's just probably my own slightly warped interpretation of things at times, I, I kind of grew up under the, we live by faith and not by feelings, which is absolutely true. But I kind of pulled that through a bit to take it that I shouldn't actually, um, I shouldn't worry too much about, I felt guilty if I was really wanting to push through to actually experience, have an experience in God. Does that make any sense? Because I felt like if I was doing that, I was pushing feelings. I was looking for feelings, which was um, carnal and soulish and weak and not really what it was all about. And so I had this kind of slight guilt about it. But um, as I've gone on a bit and (laughs) run up a bit and you know, life has happened a few times, I begin to, and I think something begins to stir and to grow on the inside of us as well, especially as, you know, the world changes outside and the generation changes, you begin to realise that's actually a bit ridiculous because wanting to experience God and who God is and the power of God and everything else is actually, once again, very little to do with feelings because... What's the point of a God who's just a good idea? What's the point of a God who's a philosophy? I've got a university degree. Um, lots of us do, and I a nursing degree. And in a part of my undergraduate degree, we had to do, remember this one? Some of you, um, Leah and Gwen and others. We had to do not only psychology, yeah, that was okay, but sociology. And when we were doing the sociology part of it, they always they, there was all this stuff they'd tell us about um, you know, the coming of white men to um, the Torres Strait, and they really kind of talked about Christianity and all those tenets as a philosophy, and they, we had to do philosophy as part of all of this. It was another subject we did. I don't know why this had to be part of a nursing undergraduate degree. It's kind of changed, but anyway, it was. And it was all of this stuff about how Christianity was a philosophy and a thought system and an everything else, which can really mess with your head a bit. 
But if your entire experience of God is just up here, it will mess with your head. But are we not a people who want our experience with God to go a whole lot further than what happens in here? There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with a church of people or an individual who long to know and experience the power of the living God in their day-to-day lives. And in fact, if we're not longing for that, we are pretty dead. Well, I am. What about you? Because we're just then happy with the status quo. We're happy with this stagnant idea, with this dead, and then God help us, we end up with this dead thought system, a dead philosophy. And um, who knows that that's not going to do a whole lot to get towards this, transforming our community through the love and power of Jesus. And if it's not happening in our lives first, then how on earth are we going to expect it to be happening anywhere else? So... For all of this, I think sometimes we can start to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We worry that if we are seeking experience, that we're seeking feelings. And it's no, it's, we're not talking about the days of, you know, um, hysterical laughter or strange manifestations. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the absolute encounter with God and what he does in our lives. So if we want to experience God, there's a foolproof way. And the examples of this being true throughout so many throughout the entire Bible that as I began to meditate on this and think on this, I began that it's over and over and over again. It's told in different ways and in different stories, but the premise doesn't change. And that is this, the foolproof way to actually experience God is to praise and worship when you ain't feeling it. You know, every single time that this happens in the Bible, people experience God. Not always in the same way. But they encounter something of the truth and the power of God that changes them. Changes their experience, changes their communities, changes the course of history, changes all sorts of things. And that is really, I guess, because when we're doing this, we're acknowledging God's greatness. Because he doesn't be reminding about who he is, but we do. So much. Sorry, my phone's just shut me again. So let's start with Job. I don't know what you think about the book of Job, but for me, um, and I may be alone in this too, but I suspect not, there are long, long, long chapters. I've listened to it on audio Bible not so long ago in the car, and it's just like it's just like it's, I'm not unintelligent. But it confuses me so much of it. It's long chapters of people, including Job, trying to work it all out. Lots of commentary out there too on aspects of that, and I'm, I'm certainly not knocking it. Um, lots of asp- on stuff on why they were and weren't accurate, what the motives were, etc., etc. Because remember, Job was the one who was, because he was kind of righteous, that the enemy was allowed to have open, open, open day on him, actually, and he was the guy who lost all of his kids, many kids, they all died, all of his wealth, his health, he was covered in boils, he was destitute, and his wife was nagging. Like, 
this guy was just, it was gone. And then he has the, these friends or Job's comforters and then there's some random dude that comes along as well and they spend 37 chapters, him and Job, backwards and forwards, talking about what is happening here and what they're thinking about it. And it just goes, it does, and it's a bit confusing. But it all boils down to this. That's dumb people trying to articulate and break down the incomprehensible God. The I am. The one who was and who is and who is to come. Yeah, good luck with that. But then it gets good. And sometimes if I'm reading Job, I fly through it until I get to forgive me. Until I get to this bit, to Job 38. Because all of a sudden, I think God, I wonder if God's just sitting there, just, you know. All right, okay, okay, that's enough. And he starts to speak and he starts to remind God, Job, and consequently everybody else, just who he is. Gives them all a bit of perspective, if you, if you like. And he says things like, sorry, I have my contact lenses in, so it's not so easy to read because I sit for distance because I'm very blind when I'm short-sighted. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched forth a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment. He goes on, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? And he goes on and on and on. And he, he's across several chapters reminding them about his greatness and reminding Job of who he is. And in doing this, he reminds Job really of, where, of who Job is and sets Job up for a revelation. And Job in chapter 42 says a number of things. But one of the most profound things he says is this. 42 verse 5. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job's revelation, but before he says that, he answers God and says, Oh man, oh yep. And his revelation comes after he breathes praise and after God himself has reminded Job of who he was. And from that, Job experienced God. It wasn't his suffering. It's when God himself reminded Job of who he was and in so doing reminds us. There's another story in the Bible about a guy called Jehoshaphat. This guy's pretty interesting. He was a king, and he started really, really, really well. Um, In fact, for many, many years, um, he walked in righteousness. He walked like his father David. He was a descendant of King David. He was quite righteous. Then all of a sudden, he he sort of hits a speed bump, and he he connects himself with another king called Ahab, 
who, um, so Jehoshaphat was king of Judah and the Ahab of Israel. Ahab was not a good dude. He was Jezebel's husband. You know, so, you know, to give you some context, he was evil. And Jehoshaphat lines himself up with him, gets an affinity, which is a really bad mistake and had some very unhappy results. But then all of a sudden, God rebukes him um, and Jehoshaphat responds and the people come back to the God of their fathers. And then in the height of the spiritual recovery... So actually, you know what, they've, and who, who's been there, hey? You're walking along quite well and you hit a speed bump and then all of a sudden you get yourself lined up with God and everything is going great and you are hitting oil and everything's rolling along and then whammo, something external comes along to completely get in your face. And in Jehoshaphat's world, at the height of the spiritual recovery, not just of Jehoshaphat but of a nation, The whole kingdom of Judah was invaded by its worst enemies, not just one, Moab, Ammon, and a whole lot of others besides. They formed a massive army, a great host. They were horrendously outnumbered and surrounded on all sides. And the soul of the people was really troubled, but they actually turned towards God. And then God tells them not to be afraid. But then after, then what Jehoshaphat and God do, do something really amazing. So he tells them, go out and meet these people. And then Joseph here, they send out before the army, so that is into the front line, the singers and the worshippers. And they were to go out, so front, right in front of the army, in front of this massive host of enemy people who were brutal. And these people to go out and sing and to say, praise the beauty of holiness and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. They were commanded to sing in the face of the enemy before the battle had even began. Now, God did a miracle for them because then all of a sudden, God sent incredible confusion upon this massive enemy army. They started fighting each other, killed each other. The rest of them ran away, and it took the people of Judah three days to collect up all the spoil from everything that they left behind. would be really nice if every time that we worshipped in the face of the enemy that that kind of happened, and it, it doesn't every time. But the point is, there's a type in the Bible, and at times it does. So how are we to know that we're not right on the brink of an incredible breakthrough and an incredible miracle and God is just wanting us in our personal lives and our corporate lives to get off our collected, sorry, behinds, to raise ourselves up to our feet and to sing and to praise and to worship and to remind ourselves, to remind ourselves and the heavenlies and everybody else about who God is. Not about our strength, but about who he is so that there can be a breakthrough in the supernatural and in the physical realms. Uh, there's a story um, about this town called uh, Fledkirk or something in Austria. Um, Napoleon, French, you know, little general, massive army was preparing to attack. They were all around them. They were spotted on the heights all around above this little town, which is right on the Austrian border. 
Anyway, they summoned the citizens and what are we going to do? They realised they couldn't do anything. Do we defend ourselves? Do we display the white flag of surrender? Happened to be Easter Sunday and they were all in the local church. And the pastor got up and said, friends, we've been counting on our own strength. And apparently that's failed. As this is the day of the Lord's resurrection, let's just ring the bells, have our services as usual and leave the matter in his hands. We know only our weakness and not the power of God to defend us. So, this is obviously a different day to our own. The council accepted that and they rang the church bells. The enemy, hearing the sudden peal, concluded that the Austrian army had arrived during the night to defend them. And before the service ended, the enemy broke camp and left. Jehoshaphat. God's still doing it because the people decided to remind themselves and it wasn't about what they had, but it was about who he was and they worshipped. Some of you who are older may remember a kind of a pop band called Boney M and they sang this song called By the Rivers of Babylon which is actually a direct rendition of a psalm of 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion and this is sung by a people who are in exile. This is set in the time when the children of God had got so fed up with the children with the continuously Um, naughty Israelites, that the Babylonians and the Assyrians had come and taken them. A few were left behind, but basically everybody, particularly all of the nobility and everybody else, was removed, the days of Daniel, and moved and actually moved into um, another land that wasn't even their own. So it wasn't even that they were left there under captivity. They were shipped out and they had to live like that for a long, long time, many, many, many decades. And so these people, this psalm is set in that time. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion and our Israel. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors demanded songs of joy and they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the root of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. They answer their own question. We have our own tormentor to mock us sometimes. Our own tormentor. But it is when we find ourselves in a strange land, foreign land, a land where we're not meant to be, mentally, physically, emotionally and spiritually, the place that is not ours, this is precisely when we should be singing the songs of the Lord. I am not talking about beating up happy feelings and putting a happy face on it. Yes, praise the Lord, everything's wonderful. Yeah, no. I'm not talking about faking out God or anybody else. I'm not talking about faking it till we make it. 
what I'm talking about because that is rubbish. If I or you are devastated, in pain, lost, hurt, betrayed, frustrated, furious, heartbroken, terrified, sometimes we can carry really strong and very valid emotions. And it can be an old semi-doctrinal thing as well to actually say that we have to put a happy face on it. That is not what this is talking about here. It is not not singing praising to make ourselves feel fake feelings. It is not to put on a cheerful face. This is to remind ourselves, our very souls, so we do not and cannot forget just which kingdom we are part of. Why do we have to sing the song of the Lord when we're in a difficult place? When we're backslidden, when we're struggling emotionally, physically, or any other time? It is because it is in that very... And then when you've got the enemy saying, yeah, good luck praising now, the tormentor says, go on, sing a song of Zion. I dare you. I've got kids. My oldest and most intelligent is the master provoker. And the little ones don't quite realise it. Stirs the pot. We've got an enemy who stirs the pot. It can be pretty subtle sometimes. But he'll go tell you, go on, you're faking it. Go on, I dare you. Where is your God now? Let's see you get out of this one. And it is in that very time that we need to remind ourselves, like the exiles that actually say, you know what, if I forget you, Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, if I forget you, then, then that's it. I am done. And it is in that very time then that we need to sing the song of the Lord. Because we have to remind our own soul who we belong to. Who is it? Not who, we have to sing which kingdom are we really part of. Just who is our king? Who is our redeemer? Who is he? Who is he? And when we start to do that, then it begins to change everything. I read somewhere recently, and I can't even remember where, said that joy is a discipline. And it really struck me. I think that's really profound. It's a bit radical, really. We can't go to a secular dictionary to decide what joy is because all they give us synonyms, which means it's a word that means words that mean the same as words that are like happy, you know, happy, content and all these other things. That is not what joy is in a biblical from a biblical perspective or point of view. The English language struggles to define it. It's not happiness. It's far more constant than that. It's not contentment. It is far deeper and more profound than that. Happiness happens, whereas joy abides. Joy stays. And who knows that the spirit-filled Christian can experience profound joy whilst being incredibly unhappy. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Sometimes life is not comfortable. And just to kind of explain what I mean, um, I, um, I found an old a journal. I was 
that I was writing to my oldest son, Joel, who's 15 now, you know, the one who's this much taller than me, that one, um, when he was still in utero. And I was, I was writing to him, just periodically, just about our joy and about the joy of the church, because he was the first baby born here for a long time. I think the next one up was Michael. <laughs> Obviously, there's thousands since. Um, that, he, that he was coming before we even knew he was a boy. But then I, I read, read just really recently, I was writing in there and I wrote as I, I wrote to Joel, I need to show him one day, that I could almost couldn't get the words out of my mouth. But I was praying, God, let this child rock his generation for you. God, I pray, Lord, I pray that he would not have a comfortable life. I'm a mother, and I could, knew as I was praying this, I almost choked on it. God, I pray that his life wouldn't be comfortable. Even now, I thought, oh, what am I wishing on my kid? <laughs> I, but you know what that means? Because to be comfortable, if we are comfortable, then are we remembering who we are and what we're meant to be, be what we're meant to be doing? So being comfortable has nothing to do with joy. We can have incredible joy and be immensely uncomfortable, because joy is about our connection to the living God. Joy comes from the indwelling Spirit of Jesus, like Ben was talking about, the Spirit of the living God. We, we, we're told that we have the joy of our salvation. Joy comes from this incredible awareness and this insurance that we are right with God. And it can't really be described. The secular world can't describe this. I can't define this for you. I just give you, I'm not, do, I'm not teaching a nursing class. I can't give you a definition to tell you this. But all I can tell you is joy has nothing really to do with how happy you are or how comfortable you are or how wonderful your life is. It actually really isn't. It is found in our connection with God, which is where this whole thing about singing in the face of our enemy, about singing the songs of the Lord when we don't really feel like it is where it starts to come from because it's coming out of our relationship with God. And so often we need to remind ourselves of that. Do you need to remind yourself sometimes? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not doing this on my own. Because this isn't just about us. This is an incredible, incredibly powerful spiritual weapon and truth. Because when we choose to sing the song, we choose to sing the song of the Lord in the strange land. We do something in the supernatural unseen realm. Something that is way beyond our comprehension or our understanding. And maybe it's partly because we stop letting it be about us. We shift focus. We recalibrate or we stay calibrated. And our soul and our spirit remember which kingdom they're in. And we take ground and not just for ourselves. It's in the Bible. We also used to sing this old song. There's a river of life flowing out through me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. What do we think that river is? Your feelings? 
How you feel about your happiness? Yeah, no. Absolutely not. And then we go on to sing, spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh well, make others whole. Not make me feel better, but make others whole. And where do we think this river of life comes from? Where else is it going to come from except this deep abiding spirit of the living God who we have connected ourselves with and filled ourselves up with by singing the song of the Lord. And I'm using the word sing very, very deliberately. doesn't even matter if you're a good singer or if you're not. Try it. Try it. I lived for many, many, many years of one of the best examples of this. That, of course, would be Gwen. She used to sing. And she can, I remember she'd come home sometimes, especially when she was the charge sister of a really busy medical ward, be smashed. And Gwen would sit. And she'd be gone, like, you know, just nothing. <laughs> and then she would start to sing. And I'm not going to sing because I'm not a singer. But... It changed something. It lifted the atmosphere for the people around her. But it also, of course, completely changed her own perspective. All of a sudden, the rotten day just didn't matter anymore because she had reacquainted herself. That strange land, that strange land was pushed off to the side and she had reminded her soul and the rest of us around her about which kingdom she actually belonged in and who the Redeemer was. And it had real power. Because how easy is it? And this isn't just a thing we do on Sundays. We're a Pentecostal church. We're a Pentecostal church. And I've been finding, I think, God, forgive me. I I need to find my song in private, my my song again. God, this needs to happen. Not just prayer, but the song, the song of the Lord. This needs to happen. This is a tool and this is a weapon that will help us to move our own lives into, into real victory. And as such as the church into real victory. Because in this messy, messy world, you know, there's a lot of kind people out there, a lot of patient people out there, a lot of, I wouldn't work with a few of them, a lot of nurses particularly, a lot of long-suffering people out there. There's a lot of people who have all sorts of good things. But nobody out there has joy unless they have got an, an intimate relationship with the living God. So stir up the wells of joy, people. Let's stir it up. Are you? Are you singing the song of the Lord in your place where you are? If you're struggling financially, that's a strange land. Sing in the face of it. You're kids who you don't know quite what's going on here. Sing in the face of it. What about a report from the doctor? Sing in the face of it. I'm not talking even talking or praying. Sing. Worship. Remind your soul and remind the heavens and the supernatural realm just which kingdom you're part of and who God is and what he can do for us. But don't just do it expecting him to suddenly come in and do something. That is not the point. Because we are not promised any rose garden. We are not. And we know that the Bible talks about people and talks about it in Hebrews. Not everybody lived. Some people had their loved ones fed to the lions and decapitated and all the rest of it. So I'm not saying that this is a get out of jail a free card or a magic formula or a perfect life. Wouldn't that be nice? If it was, we'd all remember to do it. (laughs) But it's not the point. 
It's really not the point. It's about, again, just stirring up our souls so that what comes out of here is something that is that connects with heaven, that just says, God, you are God and you are great and you are mighty and you, God, you, God, you, God. Lord, you're beyond this. And sometimes there are no words. Do it in tongues. If you struggle to know what to sing, open up Psalms, pick one, and just start to sing it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel if you're not good with words. Start to sing it. Don't worry about the tune. Works. And be surprised. All of a sudden, you'll suddenly find yourself singing your own words. I dare you. I challenge you. And me. I challenge us to daily start to sing the song of the Lord. If you are not doing it, do it. It is a commandment. It is all through the Bible. Do a Bible study on it. Find where it sings. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. All through the Psalms where it says, sing, sing unto the Lord. It's not just something for the Old Testament. In Philippians 3, we're reminded of this, where it comes externally. We're told to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And it's talking about this evil generation of people. Then we hop to Philippians 4. They're talking about anxiety and worry, so an internal problem. Same command. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. So whether the enemy is coming from externally or internally, the same command is to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Habakkuk 3, verse 19, uh, no, chapter, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19 says this. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk on my high places. What that means, he'll make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk on the high places. That simply means that the God of your salvation is able to do the impossible for you. And sometimes that impossible thing will be in your circumstances, yes, and we get a miracle. But other times that impossible thing is it changes your entire perspective and enables you to do this incredible thing that the world cannot conceive of where you have a wellspring of joy and a deep peace in your soul that is completely disconnected from your circumstances. Habakkuk doesn't say, and all of a sudden, oh, there's blossom and there's fruit and there's sheep and everything. He actually doesn't say that. Saying, even in the face of absolute dearth, no fig tree, no fruit, no olives, no fields, no flocks, no herds, yet... Well, I rejoice in the Lord. doesn't say I'm going to expect him then to fix all that. doesn't. He says, then my feet will be hind's feet. And it makes me to walk on my high places. Don't we want to be people who walk on a high place? 
who have vision to look out far and beyond. But we don't want to be chickens scratching around in a yard. We'll be those who have gone up and can look out and say, God, doesn't matter who I am. Doesn't matter what my circumstances are. Yeah, there's some things about my life that I'm really not excited about at the moment, and we've all got those. It hands up those who've got something about their life that they're really not, they're not real thrilled about just right now. One or two, yeah. It's life. Sorry? Yeah, the rest, <laughs> the rest have no insight. You're deluded. Sorry. It was naughty. But anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> we'll wait till next week, you know. We've all got stuff in our lives that we're not too excited about. That is not the point. We can have Heinz feet on Heinz places, but it comes with there's this caveat on it, there's this condition. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Yet will I rejoice and joy in the God of my salvation because he is my strength. So it's not what he does for us. I said it's not a magic formula. It's who he is. We will never say, oh, praise and worship and everything's going to be great. No, that's actually seeking happiness. And there's actually nothing wrong with desiring happiness. It would be very, very weird if we didn't, Right? It's absolutely okay to prefer to be happy. That is not sin, right? Can I just put that out there? <laughs> the point is, though, it is not the be-all and it's not the thing that we should be seeking above all else. The thing we need to be seeking above all else is to connect with the God of our salvation and choose joy over happiness every time. Habakkuk wasn't looking for a change in his circumstances. Bible tells us to sing so many times. Ephesians 5.19 says this, Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16.17 says something very, very similar, almost exactly the same. This is not Felicity's good idea. This is a commandment of the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament. It's not a polite suggestion from it is that God is saying, this is what you need to do. Rejoice in the Lord, in the place of anxiety, the face of external attack, rejoice. How do you encourage one another? Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We do that in a meeting environment. But what are you doing in your family? What about your household? What about our own souls? We need to sing before the battle in the face of the enemy in a strange land and in the face of loss and famine and dryness like Habakkuk. Can I just have musicians up? Can we sing that, that, that one about um, dry bones? Just the first part of it, dry bones call out. Just humour me. Can we get to our feet and just for a couple of minutes sing the song of the Lord? Make a commitment in your own heart and life that it's going to be something you're going to read. I'm so, I know I'm well aware that many of you do, or several of you do this, but I think our water levels could come up. No, mine can. Commitment, make a commitment 
Study it. If you're not convinced, go and do a study on it. Sing the song of the Lord. Worship. Worship because it takes it past a head thing and starts to pull it up out of here. Changes our perspective. Remind your soul which kingdom it's part of. Sing the song of the Lord in a strange land. And let's begin to see what river of life will start pouring out of you and out of me and out of this church. What well will spring up? Which other, others will be whole and will be starting to come in here? You know, even little children are dreaming about the influx of people into this church. Let's let them come into a river of living water.